0: So actually in our young adult class, we're, we're in a period of time where we're, as we're going through John, this subject matter is coming up, it's coming up quite a bit. So I've titled the message tonight, the last hour, we're going to be talking about the last times and guys, trust me, as we start getting into this, I have an hour and I cannot get scratch the surface of what I want to get through. But we're going to hit at high level, some things that the Lord's been laying upon My heart. So turn in your Bibles with me to First John chapter two, as John begins to deal with the idea of last times. First John chapter two, and we're only going to get through verse 18 tonight. Little children, it is the last time. And just as you have heard, that antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have risen up from which we know that it is the last. And, and he uses this word in the Greek, the last hour. Father, we come before you tonight and gotta pray for uh, just hearts that are soft, Lord, that you'd do something in our midst, you'd prick our hearts, Lord, to recognize that we are living in the last times and what it did. For the early church to recognize that at any moment you could show up. How much more 2,000 years later should we be anticipating and excited about your imminent return? Lord, settle in our hearts these things. Give time, Lord, as multiply it as you did the loaves and the fish to get through texts that are difficult and a lot to them, Lord give us wisdom and discernment. I pray, Lord, you would speak through me, that it would be your words, your word with power and might tonight. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. I want to give a little context to what's taking place here. So John's writing a church that had already begun to feel the effects of a false gospel. Can you imagine that? This is 2000 years ago. He's already, the church has already been infiltrated and things are taking place that are are disgruntling to him. John, he's an old man now. He's probably around 90 years old in a time where the average lifespan was about 45 to 50 years old. Most likely, this is the last of his writings. He's already written the gospel of John. He's already written the book of Revelation as he would be exiled to Patmos. Now he's been uh, released and he is the last of the apostles. He's alone on the horizontal. When you think of the human level in that sense, he's the last. None of his contemporaries were there. Peter had been beheaded 20 years before. Matthew skinned alive, Thomas impaled in India. The church had been, by this time, drugged behind chariots. Nero already 20 years gone. Christians being burned alive. Crucified, beheaded. Thrown from the tops of pinnacles. Beat to death and tortured beyond what we can imagine. John's the last eyewitness. He's the last of the disciples. And some would say he was sentenced to a martyrdom of a long life. Can you imagine? Everybody else is gone. He's longing to go home and to be with the Lord by this time. And yet you and I are privileged today as we begin to spend time reading the things that he puts into this epistle. God kept him for a reason. As we read first, 2nd. 3rd John, as we read Revelation, as we read the Gospel of John, God kept him in that sense a martyrdom of long light. He's now an elder over Ephesus. He's been released from exile. So he begins to write his last letters. And in many ways, you guys, this is his last will and testament. In this letter, John begins to tell them why he's writing them. So we don't have time to go through all this tonight, but I want to give you a sense of why he's writing them because he tells them. He doesn't hide it from them. He gives them direction as to what the things that are on his heart as he pens his last will and testament. He starts this letter saying his desire is that their joy might be full. He's telling you and I tonight that there's a delight that's complete and ultimate and satisfying in him. No need for the things of the world. And that really comes out of a true relationship with the Lord. He deals with the assurance of salvation. Do you wanna know you're saved? Not a mystery, but he begins in this book to speak of the marks, as it were, of the believer. That give us confidence that we're his. He says, "I've written these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Again, the seduction of the church from a false gospel has already begun to infiltrate the church, and so he says, "I've written you concerning them that seduce you." He's saying, "I'm calling them out. And I want to point you back to the basics of Christianity, the things that are important. And so then he begins to say, I've written you about sin and not just a concept. Sometimes we hear the word sin and it's this concept. Yeah, it's sin. And, but he begins to get real specific and he begins to contrast godliness with the things of the world. He says, he's written these things that they would sin not in 1 John chapter 2, at the beginning of the chapter. He says, I want you to know you don't have to walk in sin. He's not talking about leading a perfect and sinless life. He's talking about sin as a lifestyle. And he's going, God wants to break that. And he wants to for you and I today. He wants to change us and to transform us. But then he begins to contrast that with the world and he says all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life these are not of the father but they're of the world and so he draws a sharp contrast between a life of holiness a life set apart for him and a life that's in the world and already those struggles had begun to infiltrate the church so why were these points relevant and important to john in light of the verse that we just read i believe it's because he believed that he was living in the last times not only the last times the last hour and it's in this context that john says in the emphatic it's not a question it's not a guy who's him hawing around and saying, hey, it might come soon. I don't know. Maybe he's thinking about coming. I don't know. It might be the last days. He's in the emphatic, in the strongest sense, saying it is the last hour. Now, he takes it from that thought of last times to now It's the last hour, the doors open. He's coming through it as it were. And in that sense, he's saying to you and I, are you ready? The King of glory could appear at any moment. Are you ready? Am I ready? He posed that question 2000 years ago. And that's interesting to me. Guys, I want you to think about this. When you look at the book of Revelation, he is seeing things that will happen in the future. And he sees in that book, as he writes these things, as God gives him this incredible revelation, he sees Jesus coming back with his saints, with you and I. He sees the prophetic in a distant future. And I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how he saw that, but I look and I go, there's a big contrast between 2000 years ago and what he would see in that time and what he would see today. And he didn't try and reconcile that in his mind. He didn't go, gosh, the things that I saw are so far off. I can't understand him. All he knew is that Jesus said he was coming soon and he believed it. And so he begins to say, He's coming quickly. And certainly for John, this 90 year old man who had outlived all of his contemporaries. This was his last days. He's 90. He's going to go be with the Lord in a few short years after he pens this. But in the context of this letter, he's saying there's something going on in this time, 2000 years ago, that leads him to believe that it's the last hour there is something significant in the now not what he saw as he would pin revelation but what he was seeing in the now even in light of the vision that he would see in patmos i'm sure there was some contradiction in his own heart and mind as going this is the things I'm seeing, this is a revelation that I can't even put together. I'm seeing future events. Maybe he saw nuclear holocaust. Maybe he saw today's day and age, cars and planes and going, I, I don't get this. But even in light of that, he believed that Jesus could return at any moment. So you and I can hear, and some might say even tonight, even in this room, well, if it was 2000 years ago, how do you know it's not another 2000 years? And in the truest sense, I don't know, but Peter was already dealing with that. 20 years before Peter had passed away, before he had written this, and just prior in his epistle, he writes, and he says, there were people that were saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where's it at? And Peter would remind them, the Lord is not slow concerning his promises, as some count slowness. But is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Second Peter 3. Recognize this tonight, you guys. And we've been studying this. I love that we're going through the book of Acts. We've been studying this in the book of Acts. That from the time the church was birthed, there is read on Sunday. Until he returns for his bride, we've been living in the last days. For 2,000 years, we've been living in the last days. No no doubt, as, as John is putting his pen to the quill, he's remembering things. Can you imagine? He's the last of the eyewitnesses. He starts with that which we have seen, which we have touched, which we have handled, of the word of life. He starts this letter. With that, he's wanting to remind him. I saw him face to face. I saw these things transpiring. And I believe that here, as he's talking about the last times, he would remember back to the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, Jesus in the temple with his disciples says, Hey guys, come on. And they walk out of the temple. He'd been preaching. They walk out of the temple. I've been there in Jerusalem, the temple Mount. I know the walk. I can see it in my mind's eye because I've been there. You walk down a trail, you cross the Kidron Valley and you head up the Mount of Olives, which is just a short mile away. You can see it. He heads up the Mount of Olives and he gets to the top. He only took a few of his disciples, Peter, James, Andrew, and of course, John. He's outside the temple now, and they're looking back. They're looking at marvel. Today, when you go up to the Mount of Olives, and we actually, when you pull into Jerusalem, a lot of the trips will pull into Jerusalem. We stop at the Mount of Olives, and you're looking across at the Temple Mount. Today, just a wall. Two mosques. No temple. But they would see this incredible temple. They would see these huge stones that are inlaid with gold. In the sunlight, I'm sure this was majestic to see this thing sparkle. This huge, beautiful temple. And they would look across and marble. And Jesus would say, as he looks at it, he goes, see that and he goes, there's not one stone going to be left upon another. Every single one of them is going to be taken down. And so they begin to go, Hey, wait a minute. Tell us about this time. Tell us about the last times, the last hour, the end of the age until your return. Now, they may not have even recognized what exactly that was. Remember, a lot of them didn't quite get it at this point. He's telling them things in bits and pieces. So they may not even have understood what he meant by, hey, I'm gonna return, but he's going tell us, they're saying, tell us about that. And so he begins to say, there's wars. There's gonna be wars that mark the time. There's gonna be rumors of wars, nations rising up against nations. There's gonna be famine and pestilence, sickness and disease that are gonna plague the earth. And then he begins to talk of false prophets who will come and who are gonna deceive. And those things stuck in there in his mind as he would remember back. By now, Jesus dying in about 33 AD, many years later, but he's still remembering back. And then Jesus reminds them of a man who will come and who will commit the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. It's with this in mind that John says it's the last times. If John could say it 2000 years ago, how much more can you and I say it today? I believe that Jesus always wanted, even the early churches, which is why these things were so embedded in their hearts to live with a sense of expectation that at any moment he could return. The early church fathers believed it and would write about it. The New Testament authors John, Peter, all the gospel writers, Paul, they would write about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, Paul begins to talk to the church at Corinth, and he begins to pray for them, and he says, "So that you are not behind in any gift." He says, "Waiting." And the Greek word is with anticipation for the coming of our Lord, Jesus Christ. That was the posture of the early church. He could come any minute. Are we waiting for his return? Are we excited about his return? They lived with that sense of expectation that we were living in the last times, the last season, I gave my life to the Lord, my wife and I, nearly 47 years ago. We had just got married. We we're fellowshipping at the Calvary Chapel in Riverside. Greg Glory was our pastor for four years. He would, he had, before I gave my life to the Lord, he would come into our high school and he would begin to preach the gospel. And so early on in my walk with the Lord, I began to hear. Of the last times, and I get a lot of people ask me because we see movies that come out. of Have you guys seen the Jesus Revolution? Many of you have seen that. That was my pastor. He was in our high school. We grew up in the '60s and '70s. That was my generation, and that's the things that that I saw. And so people say, what was it that marked those times? We can see things, and there's some wonderful things going on in some of these colleges where there's worship and prayer around the clock. I love it. It's awesome. It's wonderful. But they say, what marked that period? And some people would say it was the music. It was the Maranatha. It was awesome. The music that was going on. Others would say, man, it was the sense of Jesus doing something new. And people could come into the church with flip flops and sandals and would sit in the middle of the church. We had a church about this size when I started. Coming to Calvary Chapel in Riverside, this was about the size of our church. This church, you guys have a hard time believing this. I think it sits about 450 right now, but if we actually put the church the way that it was, there's even a sign over here that says occupancy 900, because we could fit 900, ch- uh, 900 seats in here, put them together. We could fit a lot of uh, uh, chairs in here. That church, we would uh, it, it was being packed out every Wednesday night. 1500 people sitting on the floor. Fire marshals at that time weren't coming into these uh, places. But boy, it, you could I can imagine they'd go crazy today. But literally packing aisles, everything, people sitting up front. It was the mm-hmm. Jesus moon. So they could you could say, was that it? It's just it was so cool. You could come in sandals. Everybody was saying things like far out and not the not suits and ties. You guys, I want to tell you what marked it for me. What marked it for me was an anticipation that any moment Jesus could come. That was the teaching that was going on in Calvary Chapel. If you were in Riverside, if you were going to Chuck's church, and we were 25 minutes away from Chuck, and so we were there multiple times a month, listening to Chuck, listening to all these great pastors. I heard Anthony says he's reading a book by Romaine, Sergeant Romaine, he was there. All of these great, incredible Teachers, but that's what they were teaching on. Those are the things that were being taught on. It was the last time. And there was an excitement about it. You go, why? Because it makes you heavenly minded. See, when you believe with all of your heart that any moment he could walk through the door, tonight might be the night. That was the anticipation we lived with you became heavenly minded. And it's why Paul would say to the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we look. And that word we look or are looking, it's expectantly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we heavenly minded tonight? These are the things that have been rolling around in my heart. Am I? Heavenly minded. It's easy. I, I own a business. I have 15 grandbabies. Out of three kids, you'd think I had a hundred kids, but 15 kids. I have 15 grandbabies, three kids. These are the things that are rolling in my heart because I go, it's easy to get caught up. We have a birthday a month. We have things going on. I'm a business owner. I'm extremely busy. It's easy to go, well, I'm just too busy. And when you're heavenly minded, it changes you. That's what marked those times. Do we purify ourselves? See, those were the things that were happening. We were sensitive to sin in our lives and going, man, if he's showing up, I want to be ready. I want to be that virgin whose oil lamp is full. I want to be being filled with the Holy Spirit as we're learning on Sundays as we go through the book of Acts. It's not be filled, it's be being filled continually. At the end of Philippians there in chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, and he begins to talk about being gentle and kind and all these things. He says, let your moderation, let those things that the world sees in you Be known to all men. Why? He says, because the Lord is at hand. Do you think they believed it was the last time? And did it modify how they acted? What was happening in their lives? How about our prayer life? Our study of God's word. Are we seeking God with all of our hearts? Evangelism was all the time. I would share the gospel with anybody and everybody. I got to pray with so many people. I can look back and go, Hey, I was praying with people. Do you, you know Jesus? I wasn't afraid because I was thinking it was the last time, but now 47 years later, sometimes you're, you get a little anesthetized. You begin to act as those who were in Peter's time and going, well, my mother's mother said he was coming. Is it now? Or was it going to be? 10 years from now? Is it hundred years? Is it another 2000 years? Live with expectation. is what John is telling us. So as John would start this verse, he would say, little children, it's a loving term of endearment. This 90 year old, last of the apostles, this Brontos Phanos. That's how he was known. Thunder voice. Evidently he had this deep voice. They would look at him and he'd say, my little children, and would grab their hearts and say, it's the last time, but he clarifies what the evidence of the last times will be and why he believed it would be the last times. He says, just as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and even now many Antichrists have risen up from which we know that it is the last hour. John breaks this thought of the last times into two, uh, two categories. He breaks it into the Antichrist that is future, who's coming. He's going, there's one who's going to come that is the Antichrist. It's a person who will come in the future. He saw him. He labels him the beast. In the book of Revelation, as God would speak to him, he saw him. In his heart, in his mind, eye, however God revealed that to him, he saw it. And he begins to speak of him. He's going, this guy's coming. But he also says the spirit of Antichrist, which he says is already present 2,000 years ago, that spirit was already there. And so this verse is framed not only in the prophetic sense, the Antichrist who will come, but also in the present, the many Antichrists who had already come onto the scene. So John's saying, even before the actual Antichrist comes, there will be a spirit of the age that will mark the last times And he goes, and we're in it. And by the way, he's the first one to throw out this word. We use it today, Antichrist. He's the only one who uses that term. Four times he uses it in the three epistles that he writes. The word anti in the Greek It can mean either instead of, or it can mean against. And in the truest sense, the Antichrist who is prophetic, the one who is to come, will be both against and will present himself instead of Christ. John's declaring that there will be one who's coming in the future who will effectively say, that he is to be worshiped. See, that's the instead of. He's going, not only is he gonna preach an antithetical gospel, he's gonna go, hey, worship me. And so again, I believe that it's with that mind, there on the Mount of Olives, as they would look back at the Temple Mount, and they would ask, tell us of the last times, And Jesus would begin to tell them when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet, he would say, he's going to be standing in the holy place. He's going to be standing in the holy of holies. He's going to be on that temple Mount. He's going to be in the temple and he's going to cause worship to cease. And he's going to go worship me. And he says, when you see that, he goes, run hard, flee, hide, pray that your travels are not on the Sabbath. You see, he's speaking to the Jews. There, as we were in Israel, at the very southernmost tip of Israel, it comes into a triangle. There's a little town there called Elat. And it separates Egypt and Jordan. It's at the very tip of the Red Sea. And so we traveled up a little bit from there and we went into Petra as we go into Jordan. And he's going, flee, go to those places. And when you go to Petra and you see this, you go, oh my gosh, this is incredible because you see all of these caves and caverns that it says hide in the caves and the caverns. He's going, go south because the one who's coming, it's going to be a time as the world has never seen. And he says, unless those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. He's talking about the tribulation period that will decimate the earth. And it's in this context, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, that John is remembering back and saying it's the last times. Now, that was interesting to me. So what is the abomination of desolations? I'm looking right now and we are going to fly through this, guys. I've got a half hour left and I hope you guys hang on. I I am doing my best to get all this in. There's so much to this. I want you to turn with me to Daniel chapter nine. Initially, they would think of the abomination of desolation, many who would come later on as Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a, a Greek king who defiled the temple, stopped the worship, uh, the daily, twice daily stopped it, offered up a pig in the temple, and it was called the abomination that makes desolate, this idea of the abomination of desolation. But in this context. He's speaking of a future person, the Antichrist, who during the uh, tribulation is going to defile the temple by offering himself to be worshiped. In Daniel 9, and I want to look here because this is, Jesus says, look here. When his disciples are asking him, tell us about the last days, Jesus goes, go to Daniel chapter 9. And I, I want to say something to you again. As we went into Israel, you would walk around the streets there in Jerusalem. And you would see the Hasidic Jews that were the hats on and the, the still in, in more of a traditional hats. And they adhere really mostly to the five books of the Pentateuch. They still uh, read some of the other books of the Old Testament. When it comes to Daniel chapter 9, the Mishnah says, stay away from it. It's too holy for us to understand. It's not to be read. And, and that resonates with me, you guys, because I grew up Catholic. And in the sixties, growing up in, in the Catholic church, I would go in and it was omnisolo. solo." I don't speak Latin, but whatever they would say, I didn't have a clue. Nobody did. It wasn't until 1967 that the masses started being preached in English and why? Because the Jesus movement had hit, Catholics were being saved all over the place. And they go, hey, and they're reading their Bibles and they're going, hey, look what's happening. And so the Catholic church goes, hey, maybe we better let people read their Bibles. Maybe we better start preaching in a language that, that people understand. That's what the Jews are doing. They're saying, stay away from it. And you're gonna see why and what happens here as we read further. So in Daniel chapter nine, starting with verse 24, Daniel says, 70 weeks are determined upon the people and as your holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make atonement for iniquity and to bring an everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and the prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore, and understand. Now, when you read something, know, therefore, and understand, what does that mean? Means exactly what it says. The information that you're about to get is obtainable. You can understand it, right? He's going, know, therefore, and understand. He's saying it's not going to be a mystery to you. This is something that you will understand if you listen, if you adhere to this that from the going out of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem, to Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. A total of 69 weeks is what he's saying. The streets shall be built again, and the wall, even in the times of of affliction. Now, underline this in your Bible, we're gonna come back to this. And again, all of this is at a very rapid rate, guys. I'm more than happy to talk to you guys afterwards. I'll give you some references if you want to places you can uh, go and read, but he goes on and this idea of even in times of affliction is important because we're going to, we're going to see what this means. And then in verse 26, he says, and after 62 weeks, so it's the 69 weeks, less the seven weeks Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the ruler who shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end of it shall be the flood and ruins are determined until the end shall be war. Verse 27, and he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So this is the 70 weeks that he's talking about. He's broken it down for us and he begins to talk about 70 weeks. And in the midst Of the week this one week that's remaining in the middle of that week he shall uh, cause the sacrifice and the offering to cease and on a corner of the altar desolating abomination even until the end so i want to put this into context and we're going to do this rapidly but he says there are 70 weeks Now, the Jewish people would think in sevens. You and I have a base 10 numbering system. We get that from the Romans. So we think in decades or centuries, guess what they thought in? Sevens. So a week was seven days. No astrological reason for that. Seven, God said. So they would think in terms of seven. Everything for them was sevens. And most scholars agree, in fact, every scholar I read agreed with the fact that these 70 weeks are broken into 77 year periods. So a week represents a seven year period. So if a week represents a seven year period, then 70 weeks is actually 490 years. Okay. Now, stay with me here. As the prophecy progresses, Daniel breaks the 70 weeks into, as we read, into three distinct periods. He says 69 weeks, which is the 62 plus the seven weeks that he says, or 483 years until what? Until Messiah comes. He says the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah, the Prince is going to come. And so, again, this isn't a mystery. He's going, the Messiah is going to come. 483 years, and the Messiah is going to come. Then after 62 weeks, and this gets a little wordy, but it's really the same number. It's the 69 number because he's saying after 62 weeks, which is 434 years, well, 434 years equals 483, less the seven-week period. And we'll see this in just a second in Nehemiah, what that, Seven week period was or 49 year period. It's still the same number, but he's going after now. He's going 69 weeks, Messiah is going to come. After that is effectively what he's saying is after that, Messiah is going to be cut off. So he's making a distinction 69 weeks, Messiah is going to come. And after that, he'll be cut off, but not for himself. And there is no clearer picture in scripture, you guys, in the Old Testament of the intent and purpose of Jesus' death for you and I. It serves as a powerful reminder because he's going, it's not for him. He goes, for who? For a a lost people, for you and I, people who need salvation. And then he says, and during that period, after the 62 weeks, he goes, the city and the temple Will be destroyed that happens just a few years after jesus death in 70 a.d titus vespasian comes in and he destroys jerusalem remember we read there as jesus is on the mount of olives he's looking and he's going hey that temple's not going to be left standing and he's going this is going to mark the last times just a few years later temple destroyed not a stone left standing and then he breaks it into the third time period and then in the middle of one week or that seven year period the antichrist is going to come and cause sacrifice to cease and he's going to create the abomination of desolation as he offers himself up to be worshiped now i know that's a lot guys and there's reason that I'm saying these things. This is at the heart of the prophecy Jesus is referring to in Matthew 24. He tells us, come and look here. So I want to focus for just a minute on the 69 weeks or the 483 year period. Because it's a marker. See, when he says, no one understand, he's going, it's attainable. So this becomes a marker. Daniel is giving us specifics. From what? 483 years. He goes from the going out of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. So remember, they're in captivity. Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's the time of Nehemiah now. And he's going, hey, from that point, there will be 483 years, 69 weeks. Until what? Till the Messiah. Jesus coming to Jerusalem as the one who will be cut off. And this is why I believe Daniel's making the point because he's going, know therefore and understand. He wants the reader. This is the Jewish people. He's wanting the reader to know from the going out of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, a time clock is starting. Look for that. Watch. Keep your eyes open. Guess what? It happened. Nehemiah writes of it. In Nehemiah chapter 2, he writes and he says, and it happened. So, Nehemiah 2 verse 1 says, and it happened. What's it? He tells us in verse 8. He says in verse 8, a decree went forth to rebuild Jerusalem. What happens as soon as that happens? Marker starts, right? 483 years until what? Messiah comes. He goes on then and says, and it happened in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king. So 400 years from Artaxerxes the king issuing the command to to Nehemiah. It wasn't obscure or unknowable. There was a marker put forth. It was explicit, 483 years exactly. Now see, we look backwards in time. So we have to try and figure this out. When did Artaxerxes come on the scene? It's tougher for us, but for them, they would see it in a few short years. They would know. The prophecy went forward and it wasn't many years after and bam, in captivity, Nehemiah sitting in there and he's sad and the king sees him, Artaxerxes sees him and goes, why is your countenance so bad? And he's going, I've been to to my city, to Jerusalem. It's decimated. The city wall is broke down. The temple is non-existent. It breaks my heart. And Artaxerxes goes, hold the temple. And he tells us when it happened. In the 20th year, Nisan. There was a guy, and you, you guys, wouldn't you think that this would be important? You're looking for the Messiah. Don't you think that's important? You'd think that they would be going, yes, we can know instead they go daniel's prophecy is too heavy for us we can't know it and they were blinded so 2000 years later the 1800s almost 2000 years 1800 years later there's a guy by the name of sir robert anderson he's this devout christian he was actually headed up scotland yard so this guy is a he's into wanting to uncover mysteries. He's a devout Christian. He's actually both Scotland Yard director, but he's also a preacher. And so he wants to find out, when was this? And so he starts doing a lot of research. He begins to look back and he studies these things. And he says, hey, wait a minute, we can know from history when Artaxerxes started his reign. And he found out according to his studies that it was 465 bc now this is tough because he's dealing with ancient calendars that are in different time periods than what we are we're a 365 year calendar we have leap years we have all of these things for uh, to coincide with some of the astrological issues that that scientists want to deal with and so at that time it was a 360 day calendar so They're going through a 360 day calendar. And so he's using that calendar and he goes, okay, 465 BC. So 20 years later, because it's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes in the year Nisong. And so he knows what that year is. So that would be 445, 20 years later is you minus it because it's going towards zero. So instead of 465, it's 445 BC, 20 years later, he's going to decree went forward so if you take now this is where the seven weeks and the 62 weeks come in because if you take 49 years or seven weeks as daniel says it was known as and that's why i had you underline in daniel it was known as the time of trouble they're there they're out of their land they're in captivity it's the time of trouble so daniel is referencing that period he goes even in that period god's going to do something a decree is going to come forward guess how long it took him from that decree to actually get the temple walls up and built 49 years so in that time that's the 49 year period that they're talking about that's the seven weeks as it were and then he says if you add 62 to that period We get the 483, so do this. He goes, hey, Sir Robert Anderson goes, hey, I'm going to multiply 483 times 360, and that's 173,880 days. So he's going, hey, if you begin those days, March 14th, which was Nissan, 445 BC, it takes us to Palm Sunday, April 6th, 32 AD. Exactly. So that was awesome. And you go, hey, that was in the 1800s. This guy did this incredible work. And that date actually held for 200 years. Scholars debated it. They went down, they looked at all the information. But a little bit later, and in fact, very recently, there was a guy by the name of Harold Honer. He's a Biblical scholar, a professor of uh, New Testament theology at Dallas Theological Seminary. He died in 2009. Before he died, he began to look into this and really start researching it. And he recognized that Sir Robert Anderson did an incredible job. But now, because of the newer technologies and the things we do, he realized that, hey, Nissan actually that Artaxerxes reign actually began in 464, not 465, a year later than what he thought. And this had to do with the different calendars that they would use, the Julian, the Hebrew, the Persian calendars. And so he goes into all of that. And there's books that he's written on this very subject. And so he now uses 464 BC 173,880 days does the same exact thing. And it takes us to Palm Sunday, March 30th, 33 AD, which again, coincides with why most scholars believe Jesus was 33 years old when he died. All of these things started his ministry at 30 years old. So why did I go through all this? I've got 10 minutes to tell you. Why did I go through all of this? There's two reasons. The first is found in Daniel's prophecy of what occurs when this great event took place. He says, 70 weeks to determine upon your people as to your holy city. Now, no doubt he's speaking of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. He said in verse 24, he says, to finish the transgression, he goes to deal with sin. He goes, this 483-year period, the 70 weeks, all the things that I'm about to tell you about, he goes, all of these things I'm writing to finish transgression. In essence, to deal with the issue of human sin. And it's at the heart of the gospel. Sinful man who needs a savior. And then he says, to make an end of sin. He says, literally putting away forever its power or its hold over you and I, over mankind. You want to be free from sin? He's going, this prophetic word as it goes forward, this is where it's found. To make reconciliation for iniquity. He's going, the price was once and for all paid in full. The idea of reconciliation means there was a cost there would be a final sacrifice to bring everlasting righteousness. He goes, this is going to be righteousness that's imputed and it's without end. It's everlasting. All of that taking place at the cross when the Messiah, the Prince would be cut off. That's Daniel's prophecy going forth after 483 years. When does that righteousness happen? When is it imputed to you and I? Is it at the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross? Is that when it happened? Did it happen or is it going to happen in the millennial reign? After the great tribulation, Jesus coming to establish his kingdom on the earth? Or does it happen when the enemy is finally and forever vanquished after The millennial reign and the new heaven and the new earth is created. I believe, yes, and yes. All of the above. We are now righteous in him because of what he did upon the cross. And then he says, to still up the vision and the prophecy. These, this brings us to the end of the age, and he's going, there's no more prophecy needed. We don't need any further prophecy he's going it's all going to be fulfilled at this point it's the end of the age it's done with no more prophetic words going forth and to anoint the most holy and i don't know if this is the new jerusalem that comes down from heaven or whether this is jesus in the new jerusalem not sure but i know this it's going to mark the end of the age and he's going all of this is sure all of this is about the price that was paid for you and I, that we could be free from the sin of power and death. Paul would say this to the Corinthian church, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death. Where's your sting? Oh, grave. Where's your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. Jesus came to set us free. I want you to picture this with me, guys, as we end here tonight. These words, we we have to, we can't just read these words on a page and and expect that they're going to transform us. Think about what's taking place here. Think about what happened 483 years after the decree went forth in the time of Nehemiah. Jesus would come over the Mount of Olives. I told you, as you come over the Mount, there's a road that leads down. Now you're going to cross the Kidron Valley. You're going to go in through a gate. You're going to see all of this incredible splendor. Jesus is coming over. Remember what he's writing on Palm Sunday, the prophetic word word going out on the foal of a donkey, this powerful. Majestic, mighty, triumphant king. Not as they thought he was coming. 483 years, he said, this is what was going to happen. And he comes in and he's riding on a donkey. But why 483 years later was the Messiah going to come? Daniel says to be cut off. He had a purpose. It was not for himself, but for you and me. So he's descending down this mountain path. Now, as their tradition was as as they would come into the Passover, this Palm Sunday, the Sunday before, all of these people now coming into back into Jerusalem from many different areas, coming into Jerusalem. They want to worship. They're coming in on Palm Sunday. They would come down that road Jesus is coming down that road and palms are being thrown in front of hosanna hosanna the king but there was a tradition that they would have you see the priests would line up on the wall the people would line the streets and they would begin to declare psalm 24 the king of glory, psalm. The crowd, as they would line the streets, would scream out this psalm, lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you everlasting doors, the king of glory will come in. They'd be screaming it. And then the priests, standing on the wall, it would be a refrain that would go forth. Who is the king of glory? They'd go Jehovah, strong and mighty. Jehovah, mighty in battle. Jesus riding the donkey down this hill. The Bible tells us he begins to weep. And the language as he would weep begins to convulse. Have you ever been so diswrought that your body shakes? That's the language. Jesus, as he heads down this hill, his body shaking as he's crying in tears. Why? He says, he goes on to say, if, as he looks out Over these priests, as he looks out over Jerusalem, he says, if you had only known. Even you, especially in this, your day. The things that make for your peace. Why? Because they could have calculated it. They could have known that in 33 AD, March 30th, Palm Sunday he would come riding in and they would have looked for the very thing that they were singing. Oh, they missed it. You guys, this is a warning. John, as he writes this, that this is the last time it becomes a warning to you and I, because Daniel warned them. He's warning you and me tonight. He's saying that there's a spirit of antichrist that's already infiltrated the church, that points us away from the finished work of Jesus Christ. You may have seen all of that taking place, not only in the world, but in churches today that offer a self-help gospel or make worship all about you and me and not about the King of glory. See, it's a warning to you and me. That we don't become those. Who are in. The roadway. The king of glory coming in. And maybe we're the loudest voices going. Hey lift up your heads. Oh you. Gates. Lift them up you everlasting doors. The king of glory will come in. And all the while. We're toying with sin. Our hearts are from the King of Glory, because it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus rode down that hill. John's warning, this little church in Asia Minor, pleading with them in a way, be aware. We'll close with this, and the second reason is that they missed it. Are we oblivious to the imminent return? Are we going to be the ones found singing songs of his coming and yet unaware that he's at the door and he's entering in to the city jesus said in revelation 22 and i'm going to ask the worship team to come back up we're going to sing one last song he said in revelation chapter 22 it's the end of the book of revelation he says surely I come quickly. He's going, I'm at the door. This is no longer the fathers of the faith, the apostles, those who would come after and preserve the word of God that was written. This is Jesus himself. And he's going, I'm coming when? Quickly, there in revelation may our refrain may your refrain may my refrain be amen even come lord jesus let's pray father i know this was a lot tonight so much ground to cover so many things in your word i pray tonight that we would Have a heart, Lord, for your imminent and soon return. That it would change us, the way that we think, the things that are important to us, Lord. Do a work in the midst of this little church in Bakersfield. In the midst of the lives of the people that are here tonight, Lord. Change our lives into a people who anticipate And because we anticipate your return, we have our lamps full of the oil of the Holy Spirit. Do a work, Lord, that only you can do. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.